Hi, this is Craig, and welcome to this episode of Leaders with Craig Miller. This is the podcast where we speak with leaders and discuss real-life challenges and practices to becoming more effective at work and in life. Please join me today as I speak with Mario Stamianidis. Marios is a senior partner with Ernst & Young in New York and shares during this episode not only his background, which I find so interesting, but the theme of the podcast, which is how to drive strategy and make sure that people are actually committed and going beyond lip service. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I especially like how Marios shared not only his learning and some of his experience, but used very specific examples and stories to illustrate. So I hope you enjoy. Great. So welcome, Marius. Thank you very much for joining today. Thank you. Great to be here, Craig. Thank you yeah. for the invite. Yeah. So as we do on this podcast, very interested in hearing more about your journey, less about the CV, more about what makes Marius Marius. And, and certainly, as I shared in the intro, you're a senior partner with Ernst & Young. That may be where we end, but please share with us how Rhodes took you there and who you are. Really interested in hearing that first. Thank you. Thank you for that. I think the real core of, uh, of Marius is that uh, there's a lot of passion in what I do. I, um, I do things wholeheartedly, and I think that's the core of my being, whether it's running a business, whether it's uh, tackling an adventure, a lot of passion. Uh, how did that develop? Our beginnings were humble, just like many, many of us. And uh, I think that had a good number of lessons which include perseverance, hard work, getting up after getting knocked down, and dealing with challenging events. So moving between countries, learning new languages, those are all challenging events that I think shape us, at least they shape me. Uh, and also I, what, what they did is give me an understanding of how people react when things are difficult for them, which also I, I, I think has translated into some compassion, which is an important part of who I am. I, I feel like I can connect with people on a more personal level. I, of course, we, we work professionally so many hours a day, but those three or four key themes, adversity, uh, understanding, passion, compassion, just wanting to have quality and, and build something better. I love the motto of EY. Uh, our 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 concept is building a better working world. Hmm. And that's an important part of uh, what, what it means to do things in the professional realm. But you've got to take that outside of the professional realm too. We've got to build a world that's better generally, whether it's climate or whatever it is. So I, I like those concepts. I believe in them. And I, I think they shape who I am and, and the way that I look at my work the people I work with, and the way that I want to impact the world through what I do. Can you go back, just um, put you on the spot for a second, when you talk about the challenges in maybe even your younger years, can you give sure. one story, one example of the challenge you had and, and certainly how that shaped you or where that shows up today as being helpful? Yes. One of the most memorable ones is when we moved from Cyprus to South Africa. And uh, the reason it's memorable is both in terms of the experience of moving from a little country in the Mediterranean to a big country, a big city, and not speaking the language, two languages. So we, were, we did not speak 
English. We did not speak Afrikaans, which was at that time was the second language. So it took a significant volume of hard work to get to the point where we could have conversations, we could understand our, we were students, we were 13 years old at the time. But what it taught me were several things. One is we had tremendous support from my, my father. He made a point of helping us, not by saying do this, but by taking us to private lessons to learn English, private lessons to learn Afrikaans, and investing that time. And, and, and when we talk later about strategy, I, I, one of the things that I think is critical is for the person who's giving ideas and suggestions and setting strategy to actually get a hands-on element. So the learning for me was work hard, try and adapt and, and, and move towards uh, integration. But also I learned that you need support. And, and that is a huge lesson for me in that I feel the commitment to do versus to just say to people here, go do this but to actually be part of that solution. And I, I think that's the part that I feel I learned the most out of those difficult first few years, settling into a new country, new way of living, language, people, friends, everything else. Do you find, I'm just as someone who also has that same experience, left leaving my home country and living in a different country with a different language. And uh, I have this conversation often with clients who have, spent time in different cultures. One of the things that I think is so important as a leader is to be able to distinguish between what I call the dance floor and the balcony. So I'm in my work, I'm in the conversation, I'm doing my job. The ability, the great leaders that I watch are really good at consistently stepping above it all and observing what's happening from a different viewpoint to see what's being missed. And I think for me at least, and a lot of people that I meet who have lived in different cultures, there's almost a superpower that's that's embedded because you're different. You're the other. You you are an observer, and you don't feel like you're part of the soup. You know they say the fish doesn't notice they're in the water. I think that's actually helpful. Does that make sense? It does make sense uh, very much. And uh, I, I think your your prior podcast that covered the the concept of being in the business. Uh, really is is uh, versus looking after the business. I forget the specific terminology. On. In, in versus on. on. That's it. So I, I think about that every day because as I grew through my organization, and I think it, it's similar to all the listeners where we, as we move through organizations, we have different roles. And as I moved to looking working on the business versus in the business, that experience was really helpful for me. And I have these conversations with some of the uh, managers who move to senior manager, for example, in our structure or, or seniors to managers at just organizational hierarchy. But sometimes that concept of you've got to work on the business, step back, step out, go on the balcony to use your metaphor mm. and look down and then help the people who are on the dance floor and show them what to do. Don't be on the dance floor all the time, step back. Uh, and another metaphor that a great leader that I, I've admired for many years told me is you've got to step back and look at the chessboard as a whole and look at which pieces are going to move and when and think about the next three moves versus being in that one move or being 
the pawn or the, the king or whatever <laughs> metaphor you use there. So similar concept, but but I do love that and it, it does stick with me. Super. So let's go to so what you were talking about before. Let's go to this concept of strategy and specifically what I'm interested in. I think for many of my clients and listeners, how do you not only keep the business on strategy, but how do you actually get people to commit? So in my work, I often talk about the difference between compliance and commitment. And compliance is what is produced in command and control. So I'm your boss, do it because I said so. That does work in the short term. And it was a great way to work, I think, in the industrial revolution. I'm not so sure how effective it is for the long game these days. So talk to us a little bit about how you couple strategy and getting people to really commit and come with you. Great, great flow here. The, I like the, the concept of talking about strategy. I, I do see myself as thinking strategically much of the time um, because of roles, but also because of the positions I've had in terms of building businesses or taking businesses that were challenged and having to, to step back, step out and build the strategy and then improve the businesses or take what was already good and, and get it to better. I think about strategy uh, and operationalizing it from a few perspectives. Firstly, at, a, at the core, it's about building a level of trust. And I love, I'll mention his name, Kovi, because the, the, the speed of trust is an important component when you look at strategy and operationalizing it. You cannot do it alone and you cannot do it by command. The way you described it, I think is perfect. So how do you do it? So I, I take some of the principles around building trust. And I'll go through them in the third part of my, of my uh, next few points. So first point is, there has to be a why. Mm-hmm. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? And, and fundamentally, people believe in the why. And, and if you think about, I know there are a lot of TED Talks out there, and the framing of the why is important. Um, I, I like it. I, I think it grounds us. But from there, you got to move to the strategy, to the what. So why are we doing something? What are we going to do about it to get to the why? And then the last point is how. So to me, the three pillars are, this is why we're doing something. This is why we're going to improve the world, or this is why we exist to improve the world. What are we going to do about it? And this is at the highest level. We can go to specific examples, but what are we going to do about it? And this is where we build a strategy. And we put in the five pillars of the strategy, whether it's going to the market, whether it's people, whether it's being innovative and so on. And then the operationalization is helping people to actually put plans in place and importantly, monitoring success on an ongoing basis or monitoring progress on an ongoing basis. So those are the pillars. Perhaps my examples were not solid enough in terms of grounding the thinking, but the thinking for me is why do we do things? What are we going to do to get to the why and then the how? And so, uh, but and so, overall with the trust. Okay. And so let's unpack it for a second. Let's get into a realistic situation where in my book, I talk about a typical leader who has nine direct reports. And what I find all the time is three of my DRs immediately understand before I even have the sentence out of my mouth, they know what I'm going to say and we're aligned. Three are kind of neutral and three, I'm just my head against the wall. We don't get each other. What I'm interested in is how do you get people that maybe don't agree with the why or understand the why? How do you 
bring people along? Because if your job is to get the best out of everyone, what do you do? How, how do you how do you bring them into that trusted conversation when there isn't trust or right. commitment when there isn't commitment? What have you found there? So I, I, I think that's a terrific follow on in terms of the problem that many leaders face, many leaders and managers, because we, we know the why, we, we know the what, we, we know how, but then getting everybody to follow. Yeah, I mean, why, said, why don't these guys understand? Let's see, like, I, 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 the, the slides I mean, are I, perfect. My town hall was amazing. Where are they? That's what I'm talking about. And, and trust me, I know what I'm doing. Exactly. Even, even more important that, but I, I joke, of course, but, but I, I think it, it, it's something that I've, I think about frequently. And as I've built different businesses in the firm and, and, and I've done different, uh, I've led different teams. There are a few things that I focus on in terms of bringing team together and I rely on my team to a large degree to get that messaging out and to show commitment. So what I try to do is find the individuals or the team members or, or a subset that are influential or have an existing trust base. So that to me is the first thing that I do. If I can find two or three individuals that are more trusted or are better known or could be my my messengers, my, I don't want to use it derogatory in a derogatory way, but if, if I have two, three people who are aligned with me and have, have bought into or are part of, that is important to me. That's, that's really critical to use them to be the influencers and to let them talk in meetings and so on. Mm. The other thing I try to do is even before rolling out strategies, one thing that I've used is to build it not by consensus, but, but by having trusted people drive elements that I know or feel would be difficult. I don't always get it right because you set the strategy and you know there'll be detractors. So let's go to that. Um, the other thing I try to do is, again, it goes back to the very first few comments I made in, in, in our, in, at the beginning. I feel like I need to get in the business at that moment. I, I need to go to the trenches with them and go on that project or help them to solve a problem, to build that trust. And again, I'm going back to the, to, to, the, to the trust principles, the speed of trust. I try to do that personally. The other thing I've seen, very, I've seen work well and I've used is a colleague of mine always built personal rapport with those who were not in the, did not trust him. It was a guy. What he did is he established personal rapport where he met with the, the most challenging individuals or the individuals who challenged the most and shared a dinner. And I, I know in this pandemic era, it's not quite the same, but the concept is uh, establish that personal touch so you show a little bit of vulnerability. For example, share whether you're challenged with a business problem or a personal problem or whether you're trying to solve something or find out about uh, something about the other individual and talk to them. Uh, th those are personal touches, and I know Anthony Robbins talks about the uh, quote-unquote mirroring, and I know it's controversial, but it's the point is to to establish that rapport based on what is important to him or her as a person, and then and then also opening up a little bit to show some vulnerability on a personal matter or something that you're troubled with. It's still when I listen to you, it still surprises me that my kids are going through university education and they still don't offer courses on listening vulnerability, relationship building, and how to create trust as examples. Everywhere I go, 
these are the leadership practices. This is way more important than how well you can work on Excel. So it doesn't ever surprise me that I meet with people in their 40s and 50s who are incredible talents and have been promoted through these organizations and simply are blind in some of these leadership practices because they were performers. They, 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 I mean, where did they learn? You tell me, where, where is everybody getting trained on how to actually not just take someone to dinner because I was told that's a good idea, but truly listen, open up and build a relationship so that when we are going to try and work together in the future, things are just easier. I was going to say, I, I think I've been very fortunate, privileged to have had mentors and, and coaches who have actually taken the time to talk more about that aspect of connectivity and improving one's self uh, versus doing better at work. I know you're right. And I wish that I had learned that much earlier in my okay. career. I truly do because I grew up as a deep technician and I had my profile and my brand was much more of a technician, a deep leader in, in technical solutions. And then I started moving into the managerial and other roles. And, and I think that's when I really developed more as a, as a leader. And I still am developing, by the way. I, well, thank goodness I for that. Because it would be, it'd be, it'd be boring if not. Um, exactly. I, I also like what you said earlier about choosing to work at that point in the business. And I hope that that was clear in the last podcast because I get that question a lot from clients. So they're saying, okay, Craig, so I need to always be on. And the answer is, of course not. What I'm looking for is, are you in choice? That's what's interesting to me. So I work a lot as well with emotions and people will say, oh, so getting angry is horrible. No, anger is an emotion and emotions aren't good or bad in my opinion. The question is, are you choosing? So anger points to injustice. Is there a time when a leader, because something is truly not fair, needs to get angry and make a move? And my answer is absolutely. However, if anger is living you, now we can get in trouble or any of these emotions. So that's what I'm always interested in is how do I, that's why it's so important to go to the balcony is, am I getting up above it all enough to be able to see what's missing and make a choice? And sometimes it's roll up my sleeves, tell my, the person that works for me, step aside or stand next to me and let's go. That's okay. That's okay. As long as I'm making that choice. That's what I see. I agree. And, and I, think, I think you put it well. It is choice and awareness Self-awareness and awareness of what's around you does require you to be on the balcony. So you can't see it, but it is a choice to be on or in. But you can't be 99% in and 1% on or vice versa. you got to choose and decide. And, and I do think anger and expressing anger is important. It's got to be channeled in a constructive way, not at people. I think there's a misinterpretation of you know where anger might be a display of of somebody being angry at one person. It's more about how do you channel it so that it has the right effect. So an example I think of is we were bidding on a, on a very large global uh, project and <laughs> I, I was angry because we were at a point where we needed to bring everybody together and to do more. And somebody said, well, we're going to lose it. Don't worry about it. And I got angry, not at him, it was a guy, a gentleman. I got angry at the sense that we are not giving up. This is not who we are. 
And the anger was internalized and, and expressed in a way that said, I will work with us. I will do what we need to do. We need to do this. And, and that, to this day, every time I talk to him, he, he reminds me of the passion that came out. And, and, I, and I call it anger. Maybe passion is a better word for me. <laughs> but that came across clearly that we're not going to lose this. And I was personally committed to it. It was clear to see. And I think it, it also engendered or, or sorry, it, it made an impact because people said, oh, my gosh, this is we're not going to lose this. Mario is not going to let us lose this. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go. Let's exactly. go. It exactly. rallied the troops. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and we find this to be incredibly normal behavior in sports so that the, the head coach would do something like that in the locker room and motivate and get the team. That means that's super normal to us. Right. But in the boardroom, everybody needs to keep the emotions outside, be robots, get your job done. And I'm going to challenge that all day long and say, no, I think it's actually your day job is to pay attention to what is the mood of the team. And if it's not the correct mood for what you're about to go do, it's time to shift. And that's an art. That's a skill. So it that's is. super. So go back to, I want to go back for one thing you said, which is you're still working on yourself. I probably have shared this numerous times on the podcast, but I just love it so much. There's this cellist from Barcelona, Pau Casals, who was famous, famous cellist. And he was interviewed by a journalist who said, Mr. Casals, why are you still practicing at the age of 92? And he said, because I think I'm making progress. So that's always been inspiring to me that, of course, we're learning. So what is your, to maybe put you on the spot and be a little vulnerable right here, what's your learning edge? What is it that, not with your business, not with EY, but for Marios, what is the thing you're working on that you haven't mastered yet as a leader? Is what, I mean, there are many things, and, and I love that story. I know you, you, you tell it many times. I never get tired of hearing it because it's, it's also inspirational, motivational. I think it's absolutely right. And whether it's in leadership, whether it's in an art, whether it's in something else you do or love, it's important. My learning edge is, is simple. I have many years of experience and with that comes a lot of experience, hmm. which means I think I know a lot of things, which, which is good, but it's also a challenge. And I think about that every time there's a new project or a new opportunity on the table for me and for my teams, because I feel like I can, I can construct the solution and I have seen it 20, 30 times in my last 38 plus years, but I'm also much more conscious of needing to stop and ask. And I know this sounds corny or corny is probably the right word. What don't I know? What don't I know? What am I not thinking of? That part is the most challenging for me. And the reason is, I don't always agree with what I hear when I ask that question. Tell me what I don't know, because I don't, what I don't know is going to hurt me, is going to hurt the, our, our project, our initiative, whatever we're trying to do, or whether it's a personal problem we're trying to solve. So I, I have some challenge, some difficulty in actually absorbing that difference, that new idea, that challenge to me, that challenge is, is a challenge for me to absorb. So what have I done? So a few things that, I've, that have taught me and are, I think about all the time is, I'll give you an example and, and, I, and, I, and then I'll pivot to why I think about it all the time. We were, we were bidding on a very large project, one of the largest, uh, largest ever in, 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 in my line of work. And what we did is we had the solution together. We were presenting to the board. 
uh, with that solution. And we had the technical stuff was on top. We were on top of it. I mean, nobody was going to touch us. And I knew it because I had experience. We practiced, everything went, went great. And then I asked that question, what don't we know? There was just, what don't we know? And, and there were a few ideas. One of our team members came back to me and said, look, why don't we change some things totally? Why don't we perhaps offer a way for our customer to talk to their customers or for us to be a conduit so they can absorb, absorb input and then we can help to shape our solution? And I said, but we can't do that. That's outside of the scope. That's not something that they asked for. Anyway, I, I eventually we, we got to the point where I listened, we brought in, and I listened because I knew that there was something I didn't know. Clearly. And, and, and I, I think part of the, the challenge of more experienced leaders, and I put myself in that because of the years and the different experiences, is that we think we know so much that sometimes it's difficult to open that door. And I still have difficulty opening that door. And I've, I've forced myself to ask that question. What That's don't great. I know? That's great. And so they came to me. We had the, the suggestion. This young lady came with her idea. And it got to the point where I liked it. I absorbed it. And in the board presentation, we introduced ourselves. The board loved her. She, she, was, she told them what she did. And then I pulled an audible. We, I, I was running the meeting. So I changed the order of the presentations and put her first. And everybody looked at me and, and I, I said, it's okay. And she went up, did her piece, and we went to work. Nice. So I think about that a lot. And I, I worry that I don't always absorb or always think about whether I've asked that question, what don't I know? I love it. And and with your permission, I'm going to take it into my practice and I think it's, and, and use it as a gift for clients. I think it's a very humble strategic question. And it's also very realistic because when I ask myself, what do I know? There are very few answers. Actually, if you really ask that question for real, I know I have an expiration date. I don't know what it is. <laughs> But what do I really, and you know, we could go on for a while here, Marius, but I would say giving yourself permission to not know is an incredibly liberating thing, by the way, for any leader. And being able to ask myself the question, what don't I know, is a great way to listen. And obviously for people to step up that may not feel like it's possible, given the experience of the senior partner and who am I to add something. So thank you for that. Super. So as we close, as always, I have... The, uh, the questionnaire that I love so much. So let's start with this, Marius. What is your favorite word in any language? Can do. What is your least favorite word? No. What turns you on? What inspires you? Passionate people. And what turns you off? Dispassionate or disinterested people. What sound or noise do you love? Rain falling on the window. And what sound or noise do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard. What is your favorite curse word? It's the one that everybody likes to use except me. I try not to use it. It's the F word. <laughs> what, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would have liked to have been a sommelier. Mm. Or maybe I will be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What profession would you absolutely not like to participate in? Being an attorney is a challenge. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You did make a difference in the world. Thank you, Marius. 
For me, that was a great podcast. Thank you again to Marios for joining us. And I really had a great time. Not only, as you guys know, I love talking with leaders about how to help people commit to a vision, to a strategy. I really enjoyed Mario's stories, his journey, and certainly could have gone on talking for quite a long, long time more. Marios asked me after we stopped recording to just put in the disclaimer and reminder that these are his personal views, not the views of Ian Y of Ernst & Young. And once again, thank you to Marios and hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm Craig Miller and reminding you that leadership is a performance art and it's learned and improved through practice. I invite you to keep listening to upcoming episodes, find new ideas, and then go out and practice in your life and work. And as always, if you found this conversation relevant and useful, please share with others. Please also send us your feedback and comments. And thanks for listening.